Amen. Okay, so it's really good to be here with you. Um, it's been a while since I've been here, and I definitely jumped at the chance of Ryan re when, he, when he reached out to me to ask him to cover for him so that he could go get a breather, enjoy his new daughter for a little bit. Then again, it's not like guys do any of the work. Um, so anyway, my name's Doug, um, and I'm one of uh, the emergence pastors, uh, which means I get to see this guy all the time sauntering around the office and uh, working hard every week. Uh, definitely a perk of my job. You've got a great pastor who loves Jesus and who loves you very much. Um, so it looks like you guys have been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which I gather based on the trailer. Um, so if you want to open up your Bibles, if you have them, or your devices, um, we're going to be in Matthew 5, and we're going to be in verses 33 through 37 today. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' first major teaching block in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first one record, it's one of the first recorded things that he does in his ministry at all. Uh, he gets up on a mountain or a hill or a plateau of some sort and addresses his disciples, which definitely means more than just, you know, the 12, but pretty much all of those who have now started following him um, as the word of his teaching and his healing and his casting out of unclean spirits spread. And so Jesus' message up to the point when he starts giving this message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, Matthew, of all the gospels, emphasizes that Jesus is the true king of God's people, okay? It's splattered all over the introduction to Matthew's gospel, you know, that super exciting genealogy, to the point where you're like, okay, Matt, we get it. Then he's born, and the, the magi come from the east to worship who? The one born king of the Jews. And then Herod the Great, uh, who had been appointed king by the, the, the Romans three decades earlier, isn't too happy about this and tries to have all the male children in and around Bethlehem killed in order to stomp this out. And then later on, when Jesus is baptized in the wilderness... Uh, there is an audible voice from heaven that comes and it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And that title, son of God, is very much a kingly title. And when Jesus is fasting and preparing for his ministry in the wilderness, what's one of the things that the tempter, Satan, offers him, right? A, a way to get there without suffering. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. And so when Jesus is going around telling everyone to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near, we're, we kind of have an idea of what he's talking about, right? That fits in with the core of his message, the kingdom. And the way that Jesus saw his mission was to establish God's rule on earth. That's what that means. And yes, the kingdom of God will fully come in the future, right? We still await it when he returns to reclaim creation, to, to raise our, 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 our bodies, um, to be like his. But this revolution that will be fulfilled then has already begun now. It is near, or as he says elsewhere, it is in your midst, and we who follow him are those who belong to that kingdom. We 
are citizens of that kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the choice to trust Jesus as our Lord is the choice to become citizens of his kingdom. Now, if you moved to another country, you would need to learn the laws of that country. But it's more than that, right? It's more than just how do I not get in trouble here. To really become a citizen, to really belong there, you, 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 you need um, to realize that there are uh, principles, a way of thinking that is involved with being part of that country. So like if you moved here from someplace that's like maybe not very free, that isn't founded on principles of inalienable human rights, um, you might know how to not get arrested, but fully becoming an American would involve a lot more, right? Like understanding a right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all of that stuff, that government rules by the consent of the governed. It's not merely a different way of acting, belonging to a kingdom, right? It's a different way of thinking. It's having a different core set of fundamental values. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount works. When we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're forgiven, we're made children of God, and we're made citizens of that kingdom. And more than that, we're sons and daughters of God. It, it's this seismic shift in who we are, our very being. It's more profound than if someone were to escape North Korea and move here to the U.S. Elsewhere, Jesus likens this, this shift to new wine being poured into old wineskins, right? That, that is no good. You need to pour it into fresh wineskins because if you pour um, new wine into old wineskins that are hardened and have, have gotten used to wine that's no longer expanding, what's, what's it going to do? It'll burst those wineskins. Instead, you need fresh young wineskins that are pliable enough to not break when that new wine expands as it ferments. You need new categories to think about what it is to belong to Jesus' kingdom because nothing you've experienced prior to that is, has prepared you for it. Jesus wants you to know that if you're going to be a citizen of his kingdom, you're going to need to get used to thinking differently about who you are, what God expects of you, what, what is truly valuable in life, what life is in the first place. It's the poor in spirit who possess the kingdom of heaven here. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake who will have great reward. Now, Jesus' audience was largely Jewish. And for over a thousand years, they possessed the law of God. They knew, or they thought they knew, what God required of them. Don't tell us, Jesus about what God expects of us. We have the law of Moses, and our rabbis have been at work now for centuries teaching us about how to live by it. And to that, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses. That law was given by my father. Okay, what I have come to do is fulfill it. What you need to know, in essence, is that someone greater than Moses now stands before you. And I will accomplish all that that law never could. 
I am the one who will reconcile you to God, Jesus says. I am the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I am your true bread from heaven given to you in this wilderness and the true water from the rock. And the, water, the one who comes to me shall not hunger. The one who believes in me will never thirst. All right, I'm kind of conflating a couple of Jesus's messages there. But you know, that's like the tenor of what he's saying. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to, to teach them about what it looks like to live as citizens of his kingdom, to honor God with our lives, not according to letters etched on stone, but from hearts that have been born again, not out of fear of God's wrath or some powerful empire coming in and crushing us, or some clever Pharisees who think they've got it all figured out, you know, we don't want to disappoint them, but out of transformed lives in which we love God and the one who gave himself for us and love one another. And have you ever considered how audacious Jesus' words are during the Sermon on the Mount? The law of Moses is God's holy law. And how does Jesus treat it? How does the Sermon on the Mount progress, right? What does he say? He says stuff like, you have heard it said, and then he quotes a part of the law, and then he says, but I say to you. What? Like, can you imagine if Pastor Ryan or I got up here and said, you have heard it said, and then we quoted some passage from Scripture and said, but I say to you, right? Let me tell you something. If a pastor ever talks like that to you, run and never look back, okay? Uh, the teacher of God's word, okay, th their job is to teach you what it means and how to follow it. Not for nothing, but that's kind of what the rabbis of Jesus' day thought that their job was too. But Jesus' teaching is different. By saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is speaking not as a servant of the word, but as the master of it. Jesus is saying that in this new age, this new kingdom has dawned and is coming, and you cannot understand it unless you understand it through him. And that's why after he finally wraps up at the end of chapter 7, it says that they were astonished as at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes did. And much of what Jesus says here is a corrective of what the human heart does with the commands that we follow because we have to, as opposed to the commands that we follow because we want to, because we delight in the lawgiver and we love him, right? Because what do you do with laws that you have to follow? Well, you find ways to weasel around the letter of them, right? Technically, I cleaned my room, but it's all stuffed in the closet, okay? So, you shall not murder. All right, well, maybe I'm not allowed to kill him, but uh, I can sure hate him with every fiber of my being. And no, Jesus says, if you think that, then your heart is just as sick as one who has murdered, all right? You shall not commit adultery. Okay, she's not my wife, so I might not be able to sleep with her, but I can take in as much eye candy as, I, as if I were in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. No, Jesus says, if you do that, you are committing adultery with her in your heart. 
And who lives in your heart? Me or some woman that you want to turn into a sex object? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. All right, cool, I got that. So as long as I've paid the lawyers and I have it in writing, I can send the old ball and chain packing, have a nice life. No, Jesus says, marriage is a lifelong covenant of love before God, and that doesn't just go away because some attorney says it does. And then you come to today. Let me read its pa the passage in its entirety. Again, you have heard it said, heard that it was said, I'm off to a great start. Again, you have heard that it was said, okay, we'll try one more time. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, Jesus says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, each of the laws that Jesus speaks to in teaching us the way of his kingdom has its own challenges towards understanding, and this one is certainly no exception. Okay, so right off the gate, something a little bit tricky. Okay, so when Jesus says, you shall not murder, right? He just talked about that. We know what he's talking about. Exodus 20:13. got it. And when he says, you shall not commit adultery, we know what he's talking about. Exodus 20:14. And then even whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Bit of a paraphrase, but we know that that's Deuteronomy 24. But there's no passage that actually says, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Rather, what Jesus is doing is kind of paraphrasing the basic perspective laid out in a bunch of Old Testament texts on oaths. Okay, so for example, you've got Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Or Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Numbers 30, verse 2. Again, that's the kind of stuff that Jesus has in mind. But what exactly is he talking about? Like, what does it mean to take an oath? And why does that make it into the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Like, it's easy to see why God doesn't, why it's not godly to be angry all the time, right? Or, or, or mentally undressing people all the time, or why to fight for your marriage. But oaths? Like, and, and, and just to show that you're kind of with me on the same page about the weirdness of this, when was the last time you really put your spiritual foot down and you were like, all right, I'm really going to work on not taking oaths anymore? Like, is that really this big heart issue that we all have to deal with? Like, you got an accountability partner for that? Like, you've installed covenant oaths on your computer, and he's like, look, listen, um, I saw that you've been on DocuSign again. Uh, we really need to talk. Like, well, the first thing we should do is get clear about what Jesus means by uh, when he talks about oaths. So, an oath is a way 
of assuring someone of the truth of what you said by bringing someone else's name into it, usually someone considered sacred or holy. Okay, so today an example would be, I swear on my mother's grave that I didn't steal your sunglasses. Okay, or more to the jugular, I swear to God that I didn't steal your sunglasses. It's, it, it's also relevant to future-facing statements, promises, things like that, right? Like, so I swear on the life of my newborn son that I will be at the airport when you get in to pick you up, or I swear on the good name of Al Pacino himself that if you blow your nose in my sock, I will never let you use my Netflix account again. I actually wrote that out. Um, again, <laughs> it's the invocation of someone or something sacred to you to add to the truthfulness of what you're saying. Um, now, the most frequent use of this in the Old Testament, as far as I can tell, is the use of the phrase, as the Lord lives, right? Or as Yahweh lives. This, for example, is what Boaz tells Ruth. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now, so immediately this sheds light on uh, of the question that I think a lot of people, at least throughout the ages, have wondered about this passage. Does this forbid Christians from entering into contracts? or from becoming doctors who have to take a Hippocratic oath, or um, other so-called like oaths of service. Like, you know, the, the president comes up and swears and stuff. Certainly, uh, through the ages, again, certain Christians have affirmed that, yeah, that's exactly how we follow this passage. Um, however, I would say that there is a difference between a promise or a binding commitment and an oath. So consider Jesus' words, right? Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. He's talking about the practice that was very common in his day of invoking a holy or sacred thing in order to assure someone of your truthfulness. He's not saying that a promise or a commitment is wrong. When I sign my mortgage papers, or even when I, when I vow before God to be faithful to my wife, okay, I do that in marriage, okay, I am not doing this. I'm not like taking, an, I'm not like, you know, by Jerusalem, I promise I will never cheat on you. Like, these are the examples of saying, uh, uh, the, these are examples of, of, of saying I will do something, and others can witness me saying to it, can hold me to account, or people can see my signature and they can see that I have indeed committed myself to this, but it's not me bringing God or the church or some other thing into my agreement, uh, to, uh, into, my, uh, um, into agreement with me to assure someone of my truthfulness. I'm also well aware that there are, are probably some culturally uh, acceptable ways of doing this that maybe do run a little contrary to what Jesus says. So the one that stands out to me is testimony in court right, where you place your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Do they still do that? I watch a lot of Matlock. I'm not sure if they still do. They might just be like promised to tell the truth. But you know, so like something like that, I think that's a lot closer to what Jesus is talking about. But I don't think that means that Christians can be like, well, can't testify in court, lock me up, you know. Uh, there's a difference between voluntarily binding yourself with an oath and doing it out of necessity because legally you have to. Like, it's not the same if someone makes me swear to something as, if, as, as, as it is if I go around just assuring everyone that I'm so truthfulness because I'm always swearing to God. 
And I, and I have to remember also that Jesus calls us to, to, to observe the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so if in a stubborn adherence to the letter of Jesus' teaching about oaths, I exclude myself from the process of justice, like, no, I will not testify in court, like, I guess, you know, you're not going to get my testimony. Um, that seems to be something that I will have to answer for. So that's how I would navigate that issue. But even in asking ourselves these questions, like, okay, well, when are we taking oaths and when aren't we? You know, when are we exactly breaking the Sermon on the Mount? We could get so bogged down that we kind of miss the point of what Jesus is saying. So our Lord is telling us that we should be so truthful that oaths simply have no use. They don't add anything to what we say because our word is trustworthy. And you can see this in the way that Jesus kind of tweaks the law here. He's not saying that the laws about oaths are wrong or ungodly, like God told you this, but you don't have to do this. He's saying that your integrity as a citizen of the kingdom of God should be so solid that oaths are just unnecessary. It's, it's like it, they become obsolete, Right? Kind of like the sacrifices become obsolete because of his death. It's like, well, do we need further atonement for sins? The Son of God died for us. Like That's what happens to those parts of the law. So what happens to this? Because of truthfulness, oaths are just not necessary. We're, we're honest because God is truth, and we follow the one who is truth. And swearing an oath implies that, like, now I'm being trustworthy, whereas there is reason to doubt it, before I took the oath? Now, in Jesus' day, this is a really weaselly problem. Uh, there's actually good evidence for how some of the rabbis would navigate the laws surrounding oaths that provided legal loopholes for those who were savvy enough to get around them. So some of the evidence sheds light even on what Jesus is talking about when he talks about swearing by heaven and by the throne of God and by earth and by Jerusalem and even by your head. So for example, Mishnah Shavuot, which um, uh, in uh, chapter 4 verse 13 says that if one administered an oath to a witness in the name of heaven and in the name of earth, these witnesses are exempt from liability for taking a false oath of testimony because it's not an oath in the name of God, right? So if you've only sworn by heaven or earth, then you're not accountable for your lie because after all, it's not in the name of God. Likewise, Mishnah Nedarim 1.3 talks about the difference between an offering that is considered Jerusalem versus saying that it is considered like Jerusalem, and Mishnah Sanhedrin 3.2 says that vowing merely by one's own head means that the vow can be attract, uh, retracted because, after all, how valuable is your head? I don't know. I didn't write it. Um, <laughs> and what does Jesus say to all this stuff, right? He says, this is all God's world, guys. So if you invoke heaven, it's God's footstool. God's. Or if you invoke Jerusalem... It's where God's king will reign, God. You invoke your own head. Well, you're, are you the one who makes your hair black or white? No. Well, guess who does? God. This is God's world. Everything that is in it is his, and he doesn't want you swearing by any of it. He just wants you to tell the truth. 
So don't do it. Well, what are we going to do now? How are we going to be assured that people are telling the truth? Welcome to the kingdom of God. We tell the truth here. Now, you might be wondering, can we make this a little bit more relevant? <laughs> Is the only application, like I come home from church, all right, I'm not going to say I swear to God anymore. Got it. All right. Um, abs uh, absolutely, I think there's more to this because the whole point of this little part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not so much what we shouldn't be doing, but rather why we shouldn't be doing it. It's because we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, um, of all the people in the world, should be truthful with our words. The kingdom of Jesus should be a refuge from lies and from falsehood. And this is important for at least two reasons. I say at least because, of course, there's more than two reasons. But first, it's important for the sake of one another. What happens to us when we can't trust one another's words, like as a community of, of God's people, right? How can our attitude towards other, other, each other be, I love you on the one hand, but I don't love you enough to tell you the truth on the other? It, and this break, what this does is it breaks down our ability to be the body of Christ because it means that we never really see each other, but only the masks that we wear. You see, dishonesty, whether it's in the form of a bold-faced lie or, med or, or, or even just subtle false images that we show of ourselves to the world, means that the people that God has placed in your life to strengthen you and to help you grow and to help you walk with Jesus can never really interact with the real you. And why? Why would we do that? I'll tell you why. It's because you're so concerned with what other people think about you. But what makes you think that that matters so much? It's insecurity, right? Somewhere along the line, you buy into the lie that you will never be accepted until you're, unless you're at this level of awesome. But here's the thing. Nobody really wants a close, good relationship with someone because that person's awesome, Think about the most meaningful relationships you've ever had in your life, the best friendships you've had. I'd be willing to bet that the one thing that they all have in common is that all those people know how much you suck, okay? I know mine are. Like, my best friends know I suck. And, and that's the exact reason why they can be the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus to me. That's what intimacy is. It's them knowing how much you suck and you knowing how much they suck and, all, and, and that all goes away the second that you get the dumb idea, you know what, I want them to think I'm awesome. And it's only then a step, a small step when you start lying about yourself, right? Because you can't keep that, that, that message up with any integrity. The best counter for this that I know of is having the knowledge of the one whose opinion of you matters most, okay? The Lord, Jesus, knowing that he knows every little filthy thing about you and loves you so much that he dies for you so that you can be accepted and reconciled to God. The byproduct of the gospel, therefore, of knowing that is truth. Jesus knows what you did. He knows what you are. 
and he died for you. And you know why? Because in spite of all that, he still wants you. That's why God's love is so crushing to our hearts. All right? Now, don't understand me. I'm not saying that you should just air all your dirty laundry in front of everyone who listens, but, but the, the, the difference shouldn't be that you tell the truth with your inner circle where, while, whereas you lie to everyone else. No, it's just a matter of how detailed you are about it. Like, about a year and a half ago, I went through probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through, right? And it sucked. I had to go, like, see a counselor and stuff. And I, I had friends who were, like, coming over my house, like, to, 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 to sleep over and stuff, just to, like, be with me and everything. And that's the version that I give <laughs> to lots of people, right? Whereas to other people, they know more than that, right? And there's just, there's levels of detail. It's not like, oh, I was just fine all the last year, no problem here, right? I'm not going to lie about it, but I'm going to give different levels of detail to different people depending on, you know, the context. And, uh, and truth-telling, like if the cool thing about truth also is that it has a little bit of a domino effect. Um, at one of my tasks at Emergence is I am uh, the leader of the community groups, so I administrate all the groups. And so all the new community group leaders get to hear my spiel. And part of my spiel is I always tell them, like, you should not expect a level of transparency out of the other people at your group than you are, you shouldn't expect more from them than you're willing to give yourself. But if you model vulnerability and honesty and transparency, then you're going to set the tone for everyone else. Because then it's, 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 you know, people see that and they're like, oh, they were honest and they survived. You know, so truth-telling has a domino effect. By you being truthful, you will encourage other people to be as well, okay? Um, now, the other really important thing about truth-telling is that it's important because of our witness to the world, right? Whom the church has to be in terms of its bearing witness to Jesus. The entire, because the entire age we live in is characterized by mistrust. Maybe the level of deception has always been there, right? But our awareness of it, I think, is more acute than it has been in years past. Like, whichever side of the political discourse you find yourself on, you can be assured of one thing. Your side thinks the other one is populated by filthy liars, okay? <laughs> it almost sounds cliche to say it, but distrust in media is at an all-time high, and whatever angle you take, there's an expectation that someone's misleading you. Someone's not giving you the truth. What an opportunity for the church to be a city on the hill. And I think we do this by example, okay? Because people are drawn to that. People are drawn, we, we were created, right? When God created us, what is the, like, what is like the, the, the most <laughs> thing that we read about in the creation of mankind in the Garden of Eden? They're naked and unashamed, Okay. Uh, you know, and you're like, well, what is that? That's a picture of intimacy, okay? That's something that, 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 that this, this primal way in which God created us, which means that there's this, this whole, this longing for intimacy with God and with one another. And, and intimacy is not just about, by the way, being honest with your faults, right? So we're honest with each other. I can be honest about my faults. I don't have to lie about myself. I don't have to wear a false mask 
It's good to be here. Uh, it's not just about the person doing that, but it's about how we respond to others doing that as well. Like, do you make, are you an easy person to be honest to? Okay, because the other part about they were naked is they were unashamed, right? Which I, I sometimes joke, like I don't think means they were unashamed because they both had washboard abs and, and you know, uh, strong pectoral muscles and stuff. Like, no, like, they saw each other's faults and there was an acceptance there, okay? And that is, that too is, so, so honesty is not only on the person who has the opportunity to lie, but it's also on the opportunity of the person who hears the truth and what do you do with that truth? Do you make it difficult for people to be truthful to you, okay? Um, and that is refreshing in this world where we are so used to making carefully curated portraits of ourselves, right? On social media, I'm gonna pick like, uh, I'm gonna take like 30 selfies and whichever one looks the best, that's what you're gonna get. And uh, maybe we'll Photoshop it a little bit and like all that stuff. And now like the whole world is just Photoshop. I Photoshop over who I really am, okay? We're all catfishers now. Like what would it look like for the church to be a place where people come and find honest people who don't Photoshop their lives, but instead where we find acceptance modeled towards one another, all stemming from the fact that we are accepted by the one whose opinion of us matters the most. All right, let's pray.